is Andrew Brewer. I'm the host of the Healthcare Insights in Northwest North Carolina podcast brought to you by Northwest Area Health Education Center at Wake Forest School of Medicine. Today, I have a returning guest, Dr. Julie Freislog, who is the Chief Executive Officer at Atrium Health, Wake Forest Baptist, the Dean of Wake Forest University School of Medicine, and Chief Academic Officer at Atrium Health Enterprise, a woman of many titles and many accolades, too many to go into in one podcast. So I'll just start out by asking, how are you, Julie? <laughs> well, that's really nice. You know, Andrew, we've actually told many people through this pandemic, one of the things you can do every day is to say, how are you doing today? Because all of us have had our lives uh, interrupted by this, whether it's travel, whether it's illness, whether it's work, whether it's uh, food, whatever it is, it's been interrupted. So I appreciate you asking. I'm actually good today. You know, I actually feel like perhaps we're coming to a place where we're better. The hospital went up to 270 um, people with COVID throughout our system in January, which was more than last year, which was 190. And now we're down to about 97. So we're getting better. We still had um, 1,002 people die over the last two years, of which about 30% of that has been since November. So it's been hard. Um, and we also don't have enough staff. Uh, so it's been tough with that. We've had to stop some elective surgery again, but we're starting back up. And it seems like we've learned to live with the virus and, and go with it. We just still wish it would go away. Yeah, here's to that. And as the sun shines and the buds are starting to come out on the trees and the birds are chirping early in the morning, it seems like a new dawn is approaching. So that's good. Now, I read somewhere that uh, you spend five minutes in the morning meditating in gratitude. Can you talk a little bit about when you started that and how that how that how that starts your day off? Yeah. Well, I was on a panel with a young woman surgeon uh, from Lubbock, Texas, and Charmel is the chair of surgery there. And she's originally from Sri Lanka. And so she was talking about mini meditation because I actually um, never felt that I could take an hour or two to meditate. But she talked about how you take five minutes in the morning to be thankful. Think of two or three things you're thankful every morning. So you start off with a smile uh, versus starting off saying, oh, goodness, I have to get up these days. And as you get older, you wake up anyway. I wake up hardly ever with an alarm. So it's nice where you sit there and you ponder about things that you're looking forward to during the day, like doing the podcast with you. That was on my list today. Uh, seeing a patient, uh, talking to a student, uh, uh, having a beautiful day like today to make that happen and understanding what good things are happening with that. And it actually gets you so that you appreciate things as you go forward through your day that you're not as uh, intense about it. And it's been very helpful, especially through the pandemic, just being thankful for the little things you can do. Going out to dinner, I got to take a trip over the weekend to be at a conference in Houston and had dinner with 15 young women surgeons. And it was delightful, those kind of things to be thankful for. So I, I need to thank Sharmila for that. Well, gratitude is the ultimate form of receivership. I yes. so I, I, I join you in that because I do a lot of that. And uh, smiling is is something I've added to my routine in the morning. So I I, I think everyone should should take that into account and spend five minutes. Like you said, it doesn't take an hour 
just a few minutes to to get going. Now, you mentioned um, seeing patients. Do you still perform surgeries and see patients? Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm an expert in a certain condition called thoracic outlet syndrome, which is compression of your artery, vein, and nerves as it comes out uh, through your arm. It happens to people that do a lot of chronic repetitive motion or have accidents. So I'm probably known internationally for that. So I still see patients with that uh, entity probably twice a month. I have clinic. I operate two or three times a month to take out their first rib to uh, treat that condition. Some of it's conservative with physical therapy, but if it doesn't work or if you have issues with your vein or artery with clotting, you need to take out the first rib in order to open that space. And so I teach that to the fellows. Uh, still write about it. We had a couple posters at a meeting talking about abnormalities that some of these patients have, like uh, broken clavicles, extra ribs, uh, things that have happened to them that actually caused the problem later on in life. So yeah, I do. It gives me a lot of joy to teach it and also a lot of joy to see the patients. That's great. Well, like I said at the intro, you have a lot of titles and you, you know, again, the accolades just pile up. And I was reading a lot of uh, the Trailblazer Award that you yes. were, you're honored with recently. So congratulations for that. Um, what are what do you think the traits or characteristics that you have that, that have helped you succeed and, and rise up to the level you've reached? Well, I think um, part of it is aspirational. My mother was a grade school teacher, and, and she told me when I was younger um, that education would always be the ticket to get you wherever you wanted. So we lived in a small town in Illinois. My brother was a year ahead of me, so I had read all his books. So when I showed up in first grade, I had read all their books, and I talk a lot, so I was a discipline problem. So I actually skipped first grade. And my grandfather, who was a coal miner, uh, looked at me when I was six and said, you know, they're going to tell you you can't do things, and you're going to tell them you can. And unfortunately, we lost him the next year. He ruptured an aneurysm, which is quite unusual because that's what I treat. And at the time, we didn't know he was out fishing when he died. But my mother ended up having an abdominal aortic aneurysm, and her brother had died suddenly, too. So our family really had vascular disease. So I do remember my mom saying education is important. My grandfather saying, you go do what you need to do. And, and part of it, um, having uh, that tenacity to work hard. I think I'm a very hard worker. Um, I actually enjoy people, so that helps me a lot, too, to make that happen. And I love learning new things, even now as I've gotten older, you know, learning new things about systems, how to make things work, um, and also enjoying things along the way, you know, enjoying everything you do, whether it's doing surgery, whether it's teaching, whether it's working on a merger and acquisition, that all of that is something to do to make the health system work better, help patients be healthier, and teach the next generation. Yeah, I I read, I, I guess it was that same article where you talked about you weren't really looking uh, to achieve the leadership roles until you mastered your craft. So that that's a beautiful message is just, you know, don't break the rules until you've mastered them, so to speak. Okay. Well, I think when you are really good at what you do and you can actually talk about it and show that you you did master it, that if you decide you want to do something else, or you want to take charge of something, people think, well, she's a good surgeon, so maybe she can organize this to make it happen. So I think be, I think Abraham Lincoln, I was told since it was just recently his birthday, so whatever you are, be good at that. Be a good one, you know, whatever that is. And so go be a good one, whatever you choose. 
Yeah, and uh, there's some authenticity that people pick up on. I think in that when they see that you're good at that, then you you just exude that, and, and you garner respect because of it. Um, now you, you're you know you got the messages. You know, go be whatever you know you want to be and and work hard. Um, the messages that somehow are coming across in sort of let's say third or fourth wave feminism or whatever is either, you know, choose career or a family. And you, you did both. What What's the secret sauce for that? And what's the message that you would like to give uh, young women, especially in, in, in that are thinking about pursuing medicine and healthcare as a career? What, what would you say to them? Yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, I gave a talk last night online to a group of um, colorectal surgeons, and one of the questions in the chat was from a guy uh, who said, I have a three-year-old, how can I be a good guy, good dad? So I actually think your new generation, not only the women want to have families and be part of it, the guys do too, and many of those guys are partnered now with very busy women, whether it's women doctors, because there's now 60% of medical students are uh, uh, women now, and so to make that happen. So I do think it's even both. Now, women tend to do more at home and, and they have to have the babies and those kind of things. But I think for me, if you decide to have a family, part of it, it gives you this incredible dimension. So whether if you have a family or if you have a hobby or whatever it is you decide to do, it actually gives you this dimension that makes you real. And I think the thing that I did really well with it, which COVID-19 has interrupted, is I never worked from home. So now this whole working from home has confused me because I used to work at work. And then when I walked in the door, I didn't work. I didn't even have an office at home because I would want to be with my family, my husband. I've got a son. I've got two stepkids now. I have four grandkids. Um, so being working at home, sometimes I'd take a phone call, sometimes I would do that, but this whole virtual thing where you can be online all the time, I think we're going to be really careful with, because you can jump on for a meeting, you can do a, like I gave a talk last night, you know, part of it is watching that. So I think being very careful uh, to, to separate, make sure you take vacations, make sure you take time when there's issues at home, whether it's your kids, your parents, another family member, and then making sure you talk about it. So as a leader, people know about my son, Taylor. They knew when he was little, when he was six, he, he asked me if boys could be surgeons too, because in his life, the only surgeon he knew was his mom. His dad was a businessman. And I almost said, nope, you can't be a surgeon. But I mainly said, if you, with your mother's help, you too can be a surgeon. So I think coming up with ways that you temper your enthusiasm uh, for, for what you do, because both of them gives you joy. You know, I brought all my kids to the operating room so they could see it. Nobody turned out to be a surgeon. I brought my husband there. And he was like, oh, very good. I don't really think I want to come back. That was interesting <laughs> to do that. But I think letting them see the window to your world and then also letting your patients know they all knew about my son. They knew about uh, him being a little uh, a kid. I actually um, I've talked to I went through in vitro fertilization to have him. I had to do three cycles of that. So he was a labor of love to get him to be our son because I had him a little older in life. So I think sharing that with your uh, colleagues at work also makes you more real. They get to know you. You can I tend to know all about their families and where they are. I make sure they tell me they are going on vacation. They're taking time off. All of that is just very important as we go forward. 
Yeah, good advice. Um, you know, you you mentioned the the busyness, the the constant work, uh, and then coming home and and leaving that behind, and it's not so easy anymore. But it it made me think of a question I wanted to ask about: How do you, as as all the hats that you wear, how do you prioritize? Well, I think time management is key. You know, you've got to figure out. When is the best time that you do your creative work? When is the best time that you do your busy work, such as writing letters, getting charts done, that kind of stuff? And when do you really need to sit and ponder because you don't know the right answer or you don't know where you're going? And if you can figure out during the day, when is your best time? Mine is the morning. That's when I make better decisions. That's when I have better energy. That's when I exercise and think about things to make that happen. And then later on in the afternoon, like right around now, I'm sort of done making decisions for the day. So I put things on that day that are a little easier to do, such as doing the podcast with you. So I think time management is important, understanding um, how much sleep you need to get, when you get sleep. I need seven and a half hours. I, I like seven and a half hours. So I'm in bed at 10, up at 530, and I feel great. But if I stay up later or get up early, not so much. So learning how much sleep you need, how much exercise you need, and then fitting that in so that you have a day that works well. I like the variety that uh, I will sit here and talk to you. I just talked to a medical student about where she's uh, putting in her rank order list for the match because that's coming up to do that. Uh, Talking to um, uh, a business uh, issue that we had earlier this morning. So all of these things putting together, I had breakfast with the president this morning, starting off my day, the president of the university. I like that variety to do that. So putting the day together so that it has uh, lots of different moving parts is exciting for me. Well, I'd imagine that putting together your team, too, is important. And what, what qualities and characteristics do you look for when, when adding people to your team and building teams? And that's a really good question because I have a great team, and it's changed a bit. Some of them have gone to join now that we're part of this atrium enterprise. Some of them were so good that they took them for the centralized area to do it. So we've had to replace you know, our uh, chief financial officer and our strategy person. I look for people that have great energy, uh, great ideas, that listen well, so they listen to others and are willing to change their mind when they find that maybe there's a different idea. And probably the most important thing is integrity. I have to have people that tell the truth. And the minute that they don't tell the truth, that they're not honest with me with feedback, that's not the kind of team you want. We just had a retreat with my team last week, and it was wonderful because we had two or three issues to discuss And everybody feels they can uh, give an opinion, even if they're not a content expert. They're so smart that they can actually listen and hear what it sounds like for someone that maybe is not in that area to give that conversation. I tend to listen really well and assimilate. I remember everything you tell me to make that happen. And I also will change my mind as well, too. But I think integrity is the most important Uh, making sure people have an open mind so that you can change your mind as you go forward. And then owning up to a mistake. You know, as a surgeon, we have to look at our uh, operations. Sometimes they don't work. We have to redo them. Sometimes people don't do as well as they want. So we are pretty open and honest about outcomes and what happens. So I think for me, uh, making sure that we have 
uh, a lot of activities where we're allowed to discuss and have conversations makes me a better leader. And they can't fear me. They have to be able to walk into my office and say, you really don't want to do that. You really want to try this. Or this didn't go over as well. You may want to reconsider this. And so I think those opportunities of having sort of a, a, a ability to have conversations back and forth with me is important, too. That's great. Let me let my uh, my eighth grader in real quick. Sorry. Okay, you go do that. She just climbed over the rail there. <laughs> That's great. See, I love that about you too. You know, it's it's great to see um, dads and, and and gals. Hi, eighth grader. Um, to 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 take care of your kids. It's real important. Yeah, it's it's been you know both a, a joy and a challenge to you know for them to see you know me at home doing what I do and then still being like, what is it you do actually? <laughs> so that's, that's been a challenge. So, uh, I loved your answer there. Integrity. Um, it's, it, um, the follow-up question I have is how do you know when to stop something like when something has failed and yeah. just, you know, how, how has that process worked for you? Yeah. And it's hard, especially if it affects people's jobs or livelihood, or especially if someone's not doing as good a job in a certain place with what you want to do and how to reboot them, rekindle them. Because I do think everybody's got a spot where they can be successful. It just may not be your spot. So I think giving it ample time so that you're not quick to pull the trigger to say, I shouldn't do this anymore. Coming up with many opportunities for options. Could we do it this way? Could we do it that way? Could we do it in a different time frame to make that happen? But by and large, you know, if it's either not successful because people aren't enjoying it or if it's losing money or if it's uh, not coming to fruition like you would, uh, then I think you have to stop it. Now, you need to get people uh attitudes so that they know it's coming you know so actually telling them you know this isn't working i think we're going to go a different direction uh we plan on doing that in a week in a month whatever it is or we're not going to renew this next year because it really didn't turn out to do it so that people have noticed you know because the last thing you want to do is surprise people that perhaps they don't have a job or it didn't work well. And so being able to give honest feedback along the way so people really aren't surprised when you decide not to do something because everybody knows it didn't work like you thought. Yeah, so you've been here um, uh, through a lot of change. I mean, you came in and, and transformed some things. And then, of course, the strategic connection combination with Atrium Health and, and, and the the move of the medical school, I mean, just in, in the announcement of the new Charlotte medical school. Yeah. So all, all that change going, what, what are the biggest lessons that you've learned from that? Yeah. Well, I think part of it is you have to recognize the two or three things you just got to do, right? So when I came here, there were a few leaders that I didn't think were in the right spot. So moving people around at the beginning so that you get a good team, that's the first thing to do. And then um, we decided to deliver babies here, you know, for reasons that were a little unclear. We didn't deliver babies here, just a handful of high-risk babies, even though we have a children's hospital. So we were able to write a certificate of need amendment that allowed us to deliver babies. And that wasn't only important for teaching and training, but for our people here, all my women from uh, wake because we are self-insured had to go over to another hospital and if the baby got sick the baby come here but they stayed there and that wasn't good and we also sort of paid a lot of uh, 
money to use in other hospitals. So having them here was great. And that actually allows us to take care of patients from the beginning of life to the end of life. And so having that happen has been just so wonderful. So part of it is what's practical, what's needed for teaching, training, and for your people. And then making sure that you go forward with this uh, regional campus in Charlotte. They really want a medical school in Charlotte. Uh, we get 11,000 plus applications every year for our 145 spots in the medical school. So actually we have plenty of people that would like to come to medical school here. and We need more doctors. So having a second campus in Charlotte actually helps us take better care of Northwest uh, North Carolina. So it's really wonderful that we're able to do that. So having that opportunity to teach and train more, more patients with this uh, combination. So we have over 8 million patients in our catchment area of 42 hospitals and over 800 clinics. We can do more clinical trials, more research, make sure we reach more people to keep them healthy. So all in all, growing bigger has made us more financially stable, uh, has given us more opportunity for teaching and training, and also has allowed us to do more research. Now, with with the combination of, of a big system and a fairly good-sized system, uh, you know, were there cultural differences or ways of doing business that clashed, and what were the challenges, and how did you overcome those? Because I, I heard the comment that you could tell the wake people in a room versus the atrium because they were all black tie and 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 gray suits and the wake people were all sort of brown and khaki and so there was there was that kind of just noticeable difference what did you notice and what were the challenges there well, what was interesting is we initially got to know each other as leaders. We actually found that our culture was strangely compatible. There were quite a few people that actually work in Charlotte that either went to school here or lived in Charlotte, and they all live in North Carolina. So there was a piece to us that when you're in North Carolina, you're sort of nice, right? Everybody waves as they drive by you and, and says hello. So it's different than if they were in a different state or somewhere else. Um, many of them had been there a long time, too, so a lot of dedication to their institution. They had uh, residencies down there, so they always already had taught and trained residents, and they did have UNC medical students there, so they did that as well. There was a little bit more corporate nature to it because it's bigger. Uh, it actually has more hospitals and more corporate nature to make that happen, and they are involved with the county system there because uh, the Adrian Main Hospital, the Carolinas Hospital, used to be the Mecklenburg County Hospital. So they deal with the county as well, too. Uh, but part of it, I think we found that we were very uniquely compatible. Now, we don't always agree and we have to influence each other and explain what we're doing to make that happen. But I do think the few things that we have in common, we want to take good care of patients. We want to make sure we serve the underserved. They serve a lot of underserved patients in Charlotte as well here. We really want to make sure that there's equity uh, so that, that we actually take care of everyone in the equal way to do that. And we want to give back. We want to teach and train the next generation and make a difference. So it's not just doing business, but we make that happen. Sometimes it's a little big, sometimes it's a little corporate, sometimes, you know, it's a little different about how they look at uh, 
uh, gifts and things that they do. And, and uh, some of their uh, productions are a little bit more city-like than Winston-Salem. But if anything, I would say we're more like each other than dislike each other. We've learned to really appreciate each other. The other thing, we can give each other feedback. If we don't like something, if we think it's not going well, being able to tell Gene Woods or tell, you know, I have a new president of the university too, you know, to President Susan Wente is new, took over for Nathan. So I have two new bosses. I have uh, Dr. Wente and Mr. Woods and, and really talking to them about what I know to be true. And then me being open-minded to realize I need to change too, that changing is good for all of us as we alter. Uh, so all in all, I think there's just more of them. They're bigger, uh, bigger town, bigger city. I go down to Charlotte a couple times a month to interact with the people there. They come up here as well. So overall, I, I think it's it's done very well. They're, they're just a little bit different in the sense of size and scope, but at the same time, they appreciate the things we do and are good listeners as well. Well, you know, I I have to give you kudos because as I've been here for 15 years in this organization, and I've seen a lot of changes and it just seemed to happen so smoothly. It really did. And, and that's, that's, that's uh, a sign of good leadership when it when it happens. But I think it helps to have that ninety miles too. You know, you 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 don't run into them on the street every day. And and the school is staying here. We're staying here. It's a second school, a regional campus. And that ninety miles makes it so that patients here we know don't go down to Charlotte and vice versa. So there's no competition. That's why we were allowed to do this deal with the FTC. So the ninety miles makes a good difference. So that you can go back to home. They're not always in your backyard, that it actually allows you to have your own space as well as combination. Um, so you mentioned the the employee shortage. Um, what do you think are the main causes of that and, and how how do we change that? And as from speaking from Northwest Area Health Education Center point of view, you know, we're doing all we can for nurse, you know, RN refresher and all these other things. Where where's the biggest need and, and how do we meet that? Yeah. Well, there was a nursing shortage even before the pandemic. And then the pandemic came and boy, it's been so tough on frontline people. So not only are the nurses frontline people, but they also have had issues too, as you know, where children haven't been able to go to school or children's now that test positive for COVID have to stay home. And, and there's a lot of moving parts and hopefully that will get beyond that. So I think it's been home pressures as well as work pressures, and sometimes just too much that you need to stop right now because you can't handle both of them. So I think the, the shortage was there before. Uh, I think we need to recruit more and encourage more, but maybe look at some models of care. Maybe we don't always need an RN at every single spot. Maybe we can work with an, a nurse assistant. Patients love telehealth now. Can we do more virtual visits and not in-hospital visits or in-clinic visits? I know my patients who come from far away just love virtual visits. If they're doing fine, there's really no reason to show up at my clinic. I, I used to have a professor that said, have all your happy patients come back and sit in your waiting room to tell everybody how marvelous you are. And that is a nice thing to do, but people are busy. So I think it's combination of things. I also think all of us are languishing a bit, right? You can't go on vacation. You can't go where you want to go. It's really a tough time to make all of this work. So I think as we go forward, people are just really looking for some way to enjoy themselves. And some of them may be 
early retirement. Some of them may be, I want to switch from being frontline to working not at the frontline. I think we're going to see a change as we go forward. Lots of applications to med schools and nursing schools and PA schools. I think the new generation sees that there's a need to come. So I think we'll uh, see more in the future, but every hospital system across the country is short-staffed. And and for a while, everybody was getting COVID. So between December and January, our staff was getting COVID, not in the hospital, but at home, you know, because of their kids and the new uh, variant to do that. So that was really hard. But now it looks like we're on the other side of that. Now, you know, with with COVID kind of transform, you know, sort of forcing everyone to adopt telehealth much faster than than was happening. And it seems to be here to stay. Are there any other areas of transformation that you see this will have uh, catalyzed uh, moving forward, like just models of care, compensation for frontline workers, you know, the different uh, physician extenders and, and all these things. Are, are there changes af- afoot? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think um, I always I have a list of things that have said, what has COVID-19 done for me lately? You know, and it's not a long list to do it, but the telehealth, we never would have adopted it the way we are. We also have sent patients home early where they called hospital at home, where if, if you're a COVID patient and you just needed monitoring of your oxygen, if you did have some family or friends at home, we're able now to monitor you in your house where we can monitor your oxygen and your blood pressure so you don't have to stay in hospital as much. We also uh, use telehealth so you could call the emergency room and say, do I really need to bring my kid in or can I wait to see our regular doctor tomorrow morning? So I think it has altered many of the ways we look at things uh, so that we can actually do them better. It's made it so we can do virtual uh, lessons. We can do virtual talks, maybe a little bit too much because you can end up doing 12 or 13 or 14 all day long. And they say we don't blink when we're doing these virtual ones. Uh, So it can be exhausting, but it has made more flexible. And I think we're going to see in the future, say your kid is sick, you can work from home if you want to do that. You can participate in a different way. You don't always have to call in sick if your kid is sick or if there's bad weather, you can stay home and work. Some of my people never thought they'd want to work at home, but they like a little flexibility. Maybe that's the day you have somebody come do a repair on your house at the same time as working. So I do think there's a lot of this that is really important. That being said, you know, having in-person meetings and seeing each other, you really need to do that. I think people are really missing seeing others. And so coming up with ways to be with each other, uh, enjoy things together, getting back for dinners and events, I think is really important. We plan on having graduation in person this year in May. We did it last year in the basketball stadium way far away, but I think we can do that. We do match day when the students match to the residency. Last year was virtual, and it really wasn't. They were with their families, but they weren't with us. So this year, we're hoping to do that in person, too. So I think the combination has allowed a lot more flexibility. And it certainly has allowed me to be able to reach and touch people in a way that we haven't done before. Now, you mentioned, uh, you know, I think before we started recording that, you have too many titles and you're ready to shed one of them, that being the dean of the medical school. So tell me a little bit about, you know, uh, that that process and how that's going and what 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 traits and characteristics you're looking for in, in that new leader that's going to lead. Uh, I'm assuming the, the Winston-Salem campus and the Charlotte campus. Correct. Well, my senior associate dean for research decided to retire. And so as he t- announced that. 
I decided I did need a dean because the new dean then can be over research. And with Dr. Burke here, we really didn't think we could have space for a new dean. So that new dean will be over the school here, as well as the regional campus in Charlotte, and eventually hire a regional dean down in Charlotte once that school comes on board in 2024. So we're looking for an innovative leader, one that likes this uh, big system uh, that will be able to help us do the new school. We did hire a new senior associate dean of education. Dr. Angela Sharkey came to us from Greenville, South Carolina, where she started a school there. So this person should be research-oriented, lots of energy, innovative, looking forward to a wonderful, uh, innovative way to uh, continue this school as well as start the school in Charlotte. Um, so we have lots of candidates. We've already opened the search. Dr. Kevin High and Dr. Lynn Wagonet are having that search. We almost did it last year, but then waited because of the pandemic. So we have lots of good candidates coming through, people from all over the country that want to come and, and be part of this new exciting thing. So we'll have the team go through those uh, lists of people and, and hopefully get down to top two or three candidates in the next few months. Great, and, and good luck with that. Um, what has been your biggest lesson or surprise or uh, lesson or surprise from the last two years of the pandemic? Yeah. I, I think the, the biggest lesson is how resilient people really are. I mean, I remember two years ago, I was coming back from Yale giving a talk and they were talking about the, the virus and everybody was washing their hands in the bathrooms of the airports. And then the next week we shut everything down. And I must admit, I, I had no idea that we'd be working through this for a two-year thing. The people's resilience, their creativity, their ability to keep going despite the length of all this has been amazing. And, and using new devices, new styles, new ways of doing it, and realizing that we can keep doing to go forward. I, I think the resilience, the grit, the energy, especially if you've lost someone to COVID or when you've lost your job or you've had to rearrange everything you've done, um, probably the most devastating was seeing all those food lines of people that had food insecurity during the pandemic and really trying to get people back so they had some semblance of security with their life. I think it's the resilience. I, there are days I'm not. I, I'm not resilient. I'm tired of it. I really don't want to talk about it anymore. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I've had dinner with my husband for about two years now. We haven't done that since my son was one. We've learned to enjoy walks. We've learned to enjoy uh, easy things. Um, I'm a crafter. I do a lot of sewing and painting and things. I've done so many crafts. I mean, I could open a store. So learning how to revisit those things that you knew to be true. So I, I do think the the rebooting yourself and realizing how fortunate you are, and as things come back into line, how to appreciate things even more. So so would another surgeon pick up one of your sewed items and recognize a certain te <laughs> technical stitch or anything like that? I don't think so. That makes surgeon stitch. And and this one, actually, uh, you, you use a sewing thread where the other one you use needle drivers and stuff. But my mother was a big seamstress and my dad was a wood maker, a furniture maker. So I come from a family that does lots of artwork. And my younger brother is actually a watercolor artist. He just retired as a special ed high school teacher and he's down in Arizona showing his uh, painting. So he's the real artist in the family. Wow. That's great. You have that outlet too, to keep your hands busy. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Now, I read recently that, and I don't know how accurate it is, but it seemed to be like a reliable source that the U.S. spends more per capita on healthcare than any other industrialized nation. And yet the data is showing that our lifespans actually decreased for the first time in a while. Is that because we just we're not emphasizing preventative medicine and healthy lifestyles or, or what's going on there? And, and how, how can we reverse that? Yeah, part of that is the COVID, actually, that has dipped us in because of COVID. A lot of survival from cancer and other things is better. But part of it is not medicine as much as lifestyle, you're right. And so once you get cancer, then it's expensive. But can we do things so you don't get cancer? Like, can you exercise and not smoke and eat right to do it? And it's really not your genetic makeup, but more of what you do. And we've seen people die more of COVID if they have comorbidities, if they're obese and have diabetes. And certainly those uh, patients of color that really haven't had good uh, care to help prevent other diseases have suffered. So, So we tend to do a lot in treatment. And as we open up this new medical school, we're hoping to teach those students how to be healthier themselves and how to teach their patients to be healthier. Because if they can be healthier, we need lots of healthy people so they don't go to a hospital and they don't need care. Now, the one thing the United States does is we give tons of care to everyone. Not every country does that. Some countries don't give as much care to those that are poor versus those that are rich that can pay for that. Uh, in Mexico, if you want to have your aneurysm fixed and you're poor, you'll get an open repair, not an endovascular repair, because those devices are expensive and you have to pay for them. So we we give the same care for everyone, but we also do need to work on making people healthier, which is lifestyle, which is exercise, which is thinking about what you can do to stay healthier throughout the span of your life. Yeah, and I, I, I've been disappointed with the lack of those messages over the last two years. Uh, you yes. know, it's stay at home, wash your hands and, and, and wear a mask instead of you know, and do these things to stay healthy and be healthy. So I think hopefully that message will grow and grow and, and we'll get that. And and maybe that, you know, something you said there that we have, uh, we give a lot of care and we, we have advanced things and maybe there's some complacency there that, well, I can keep doing what I'm doing and there'll right. be a tool or a pill or a procedure that will patch me up and send me on my way. So. <laughs> Well, I remember uh, Bill Clinton, and I think his second inaugural address really did say, you know, you have to partner with healthcare. You can't just wait till you're sick and then go seek healthcare. So I think partnering and realizing what you can do is really uh, great. You need to do your exercise. I walk up 12 flights to my office every day when I come in. I exercise. We talk about it. Things we all can do to stay healthier to do that. And you're absolutely right. And raising your kids healthy so they eat healthy, they exercise exercise they know what they should and shouldn't do yeah it reminds me there used to be a sign i think it was uh in one of the towers by the stairwell it says like free fitness opportunity and there's the stairwell the stairs that's right by me and jane way that's the- yeah yeah i love that and uh i used to we used to take breaks at the nrc at yeah. you know throughout the day and go up 11 flights and down. So, so, yeah. so there, there's that so what do you, you know we'll wrap this up i know you got to go um what is the uh, you know, for the little first grader, uh, first grade girl out there that loves to talk too much and read her brother's <laughs> books and, you know, and, you know, what advice would you give them and their parents to to nurture them to become, you know, the self-actualized and fully, uh, you know, fully realized human that they that they should become? 
Yeah, I just had that conversation with my son, who's a real estate equity person, trying to figure out where he wants to be. Um, dream and imagine. You know, as you go forward, dream about anything you want to do. You know, do you want to be a, a, a go up in a spaceship? Do you want to run the country? Uh, do you want to be a politician? Do you want to be a teacher? Uh, do you want to be archaeologist? Whatever you want to be, dream and imagine all the incredible things you can do and, and go wherever you can do that. Dr. Seuss was all the places where you'll go. It's a great one. I've gotten to go many places around the country, around the world, met all sorts of people. And that the sky's the limit. You can go do whatever you want. We need you to be the best you to be. So dream and imagine. And hard work, integrity, and eyes on the prize, right? Right to do it. Well, I really appreciate your time. You're a lovely human being and, uh, you know, good luck with the Dean search and, and, and uh, all the other changes afoot. And, and again, I appreciate you spending time with me today. Well, thank you for asking me. Appreciate it. See you soon. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.